Hello, everybody. This is Mike Boyson from Effective CRM. And today we're going to do a little bit of a, an enhanced blog post with a podcast. And we're going to talk about the series um, I recently wrote on taking a fresh look at the market of marketing. And uh, today I am joined by Dale Halverson, who's in the sales world. Anything else you want to add, Dale? Just that I'm a dumb sales guy, so I always hate it when people come and tell me how to do my job, but uh, in this case, I'm the customer, so hopefully I can add a little bit to what we're discussing. Well, isn't it true that everybody always does it differently? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and why, why do you think that is? Well, I, I, I have a lot of opinions on that one, but uh, I think we all have uh, choices to make, and, and we find different paths of how we get there. Would you, um, <laughs> yeah, well, everybody's in different industries, different types of, you know, um, sales cycles and, um, different complexities of products and, and all that. And I know you're in a field where there is some, you know, design work involved and some, so there's a little bit more planning that goes into a sale than just, you know, buying a toothbrush. Um, yeah. so that certainly adds some complexity, but when you look at, just longer, more complicated or complex sales cycles in general. Um, really, there should be a, a common foundation. Would, would would you agree with that? Yeah, I think there's uh, things that apply across the board. You know, to clarify, the products that I'm involved in right now are are furniture, so durable goods. Actually, something that comes in a box and gets delivered. So, uh, not software as a service or or anything like that that's a little more uh easy to deliver instantly so but well, and you I also, learned a lot from the SaaS guys yeah but i mean you you guys also get um heavily into workplace design right i i, I assume uh workforce experience and things like that come into play when you're designing a space well especially now i mean we're having discussions that you know a lot of people aren't haven't had for a decade like what like looking at how how does the space affect people's well-being and you know what's interesting is that we started down this path about five years ago and by looking at behaviors in the people that are using our products instead of what are the current solutions available in the marketplace? We've gone down a whole different path. I mean, the way that I put it is we left the furniture industry five years ago. And it led us to a place where, you know, the, the solutions that we're providing today uh, magically fit really well into this environment where we're trying to adapt quickly to an outside agent that nobody was expecting. You know, so being able to understand the outcomes that people are looking for is it has made all the difference to what we're up to. So um, obviously, the outside agent being our current COVID nineteen um, lockdown, and I think that's got a um, a lot of people thinking about well, how can we can we work differently? You know, um, you know, it used to be everybody had to go into the central office and um, get monitored. <laughs> Yeah. Sit close, you know, um, you know, and space was um, at a premium, and 
Um, so you had to be efficient in your design. And there's probably lots of different theories that came out about whether, you know, should the, the managers be in the middle of the room looking out or should they be, you know, around the perimeter and all that kind of stuff. But um, there's probably a lot of thought just going into how can you work remotely? How do you think that's going to impact your business? Well, I try not to think about that question. <laughs> I, I try to think, how can I understand what my customers are valuing today? You know, what we're in the middle of for all industries is a tectonic shift in what people find valuable. You know, it, it, and it's, it's a rare event. You know, arguably, our economy is still influenced today by the Great Depression. You know, you look at what happened and you look at where the dollars are being spent today, those those people who are were either there for it or were children of people who were there for it are, are driving the economy today. And it's it's uh, this this event could have that same generational effect. So I try not to use words like new normal and uh, here's here's definitively what's going to happen going forward because i know people on both ends of the extreme who think you know we should be right back to public displays of affection and people who think we should be hermetically sealed into our own individual pods you know and and they're both wrong it's it's somewhere in the middle yeah it's interesting because if um as we kind of move this conversation back into this the jobs to be done world and we think about the models, um, which um, in that world are solution agnostic. Um, the thing that the things that change, um, well, the things that change are how we prioritize those outcomes, right? Or those those metrics that we use to measure the performance of solutions against our job. Yeah, and um, one of the things that's changing isn't really an an outcome. It's uh, it's a it's probably a, a, what we call a complexity factor or some kind of, um, not a constraint. You, I guess you could look at it that way, but a situation, a situational factor. Well, what's um, changing is satisfaction with current solutions, and that's you know that's a huge. If you're going to bring the jobs to be done vernacular in, that's a huge part of understanding how you can create new solutions that are going to be found valuable. Right. So that, that is, so having a, and I, I get into this a little bit in this, um, this particular post, which is talking about um, how does the Mark, you know, the MarTech stack stack up um, where it's important. If you were just comparing yourself to Steelcase or, or um, um, any of the other um, contract furnishings groups, um, it would be very challenging to know which direction to go because you'd have to trust that they're making smarter decisions than you are if you're going to follow them. Um, and uh, and in fact, what what you know what you should be doing is is measuring yourself against something that's more stable, and every everybody should be measuring themselves against it. Performance in the market, but that can change. I mean, the model stays the same, but things change. So. Um, this is certainly going to drive, uh, I think, a change in just office space in general in the way the way that we work. And you know, I think I think technology certainly um, 
helps that. So we're, we're more capable of doing that these days in a lot of ways. Um, but we were never really forced to, to try it, I guess. Um, so some minds have to get changed. Um, and this might be one of those events that helps change those minds. Yeah, I saw a great tweet and I, I wish I could remember who it was from, but they said, you know, my son told me, great, now that the schools know about Zoom, we're never going to get another snow day off. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 my, my son, uh, 13 years old, is going crazy. He's been, you know, I, I, it's been a couple of months that he's been going through this um, at home. And we live in a, in a kind of an area where it's very, he's not close to his friends physically. So um, there was just a lot of, uh, I think they thought the social thing was really great. <laughs> you know, the digital world was great when they came home from school and continued their conversations, but it took about three weeks and he's like, boy, I just want to go out and see my friends. So uh, there's going to be a balance, but uh, yeah, I don't think it's going to be as, um, as great as everybody thinks. Um, We're social creatures. Yeah. I mean, it's you, even, I've heard that even people who are not naturally outgoing are finding this difficult. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I always said I was, uh, social distancing. I, um, what, what was I, what, what did I always, what did I call myself? Uh, I don't remember. I'll think of it in a second and we can continue down that path. But, um, uh, one of the things that, um, I so to get pulled back into the the, the series and um, kind of this look at marketing um, as opposed to just sales. You know, I, I kind of broke broke this market down, this revenue development market down into two pillars: um, marketing and well, developing leads and converting those leads into revenue. And uh, you, you you were kind of in, inspirational in that thinking a couple of years ago. I mean, I I'd always kind of you know, seem functionally like everybody does different groups doing different things, but, uh, you made me really think long and hard about it. And the reason I did that was because, um, you know, the marketing activities, uh, I mean, people can hope and wish, but you cannot create current period revenue from your current period marketing activities. That's a silly expectation. It takes time to, to nurture a, a, uh, a relationship and get them to a decision. So um, it makes sense that at least in, it, it always, I think it always makes sense to break those apart, even in a, maybe a B2C sense where you've got some e-commerce platform and the marketing people will tell you that, you know, there's no sales. So e-commerce is ours. It still happens. You know, they're working to move prospects or into leads into that, into that platform to convert it into a, into a sale at some point in the future. But while I was going down that path, um, I was naming what we call the job executor. And I, maybe for the, there was a couple of reasons I picked this term marketer, <laughs> which I know is going to insult some people, I think, because there's a, there's a lot of different schools of thought about marketing where, you know, you talk to some people say back in the day, the marketing people used to do all the market strategy and informed product development. And then they also went off and, you know, um, did their communication and outreach program to pull people back in uh, to make sales. And, and then there's other people that'll say, well, back in the day, you know, the marketing, you know, the marketers were data driven <laughs> and uh, in a different way than they are today. Um, you know, 
And as I've mentioned to you before, they, they, the, the old catalog marketers used to use a, um, a technique called RFM, recency frequency monetary, that they used to help them understand where they could send the Sears catalog, you know, because you couldn't send a 150 million Sears catalogs out. You had to be a little bit selective. So that was a different type of data than I think today where we've got all this backward-looking data, um, and RFM wasn't forward-looking necessarily, but, um, you know, where we've got big, we don't know how to use little data, but we've got all this big data and suddenly we're data-driven. So yeah, I so don't want to go anywhere data's driving. <laughs> so I, I use the term marketer. I defined it as somebody who's developing a lead. And I think some people would take exception with that. Um, maybe the term marketers not is too broad for me to use that. So, you know, um, I, uh, in this piece, I think I, I use the term lead beater. I hope they like that a lot better. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? <laughs> so well, basically what do you call it? I don't like the word nurturer, too many errors in there. So lead beater works for me. Yeah. Well, I think it, I think one thing is clear is that marketing as a, a function is changing. You know, you've got, two ends of the spectrum right now, most CMOs have a bigger IT budget than IT. They have a bit more technology dollars than the IT department. And at the same time, you know, you've got research that's coming out that's showing that CMOs are spending more time in communications than they are in generating revenue. So, you know, it, at some point, I don't care who does it or what they're called. I just care that it's getting done. Yeah. yeah and I think the, the key is that we're trying to, we're not trying to say, if you call yourself a marketer, this is what you should be doing. It's more of a, yeah. a we're yeah. just separating competencies out and capabilities so that even if you're in a small company and you wear many hats, there's still separate skill sets, competencies that you need to develop in order to be effective at it. And and the best way to look at those is by separating them. Um, yeah. You know, you can start to roll it up. You know, as I said, there's this concept of revenue development, so which is the parent to those two that you could also look at. So at some point you could roll that up and, and more tightly integrate them. And, and I, I think in some situations it might make sense to do that. But sometimes you just got to start lower and break everything down and then build it back up. Um, yeah. I mean, I talk about the virtuous cycle of business. You've got four functions that matter. You've got to develop new offerings that people find valuable. You've got to get people to say, tell me more, let me try. You've got to convert that into revenue. And then you've got to keep those customers happy so they stay longer, buy more, tell their friends and give you good feedback so that you can go back and develop new offerings. Yep, that that's pretty much it. I mean, I, I remember when you started um, kind of breaking that out, and I, you know, I kind of was looking off in a different direction, and then I that pulled me back in, and I've kind of continued to keep that, you know, top of mind over the last few years because it's worth it's worth thinking about that. And as you look at this market of marketing, um, what I've found and what I talk about in this this piece is that. The and I think you just touched on it. Marketers really focus on the communication part, um, and you know, making things pretty. <laughs> and uh, it's almost become a a graphic design house in a lot of ways. But the reality is, so there's a, there's still a lot of execution, you know, in the communication space that's complex. And I I, I think 
um, the question is, um, when you look at all the various solutions, there's probably a lot of over-delivering in a lot of ways. They all do it a little bit differently. You know, they say they're better than the other guy and they use their own measures of success um, for demonstrating that. But the reality is we don't really know. So in my, the model I laid out, what we can see is that on the on the execution side of things, they they've got good coverage. And even on the monitoring side, so they're 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 executing, they're monitoring. The question I have and the problem I have is that it's that front end of the model that they that they're not addressing, and the the data that they're you know the the inputs and configurations that they're doing to execute in my mind might be questionable because since the platform that they're operating on doesn't extend forward to the front of the model it's probably highly inconsistent about how people, you know, plan out their, their, you know, um, how, how do they map their market? How do they, how do they plan their communications? How do they decide what a qualified lead is? I mean, how do they do all these things? How do they, you know, um, go through their um, understanding their business objectives and, and, and defining those and incorporating that back into the, the measurements in the model. So I have a big question about that, and I'm kind of curious. What are your thoughts about? Um, well, first of all, do, I, I haven't seen any technology that really integrates across the full spectrum of the mo- model that I that I um, laid out. Um, what are what's your experience with with that? Um, is there anything that you're doing that you're just doing out of total experience? that um, it would be great if there was some technology to help you do it or a more consistent approach that was integrated into your execution side? Well, it's, I'm, I'm at the discovery point, you know, to be honest, uh, I've, I've had my head down and been just marching forwards. And one of the books that you turned me on to is Predictable Revenue by Aaron Ross, you know, and hopefully I have enough of a digital footprint that extends back long enough that I'm not accused of plagiarism, but reading so far, it's, it's a lot of the things that I've felt were true for a long time. And it's this idea that, you know, in a perfect world, salespeople don't spend any time marketing. And the way that I define that, like I said earlier is, is, getting people to say, tell me more or let me try. Ideally, your sales department spends their time with people who've already said that. And, you know, I have the luxury of finally working at a company where I know a little bit of what that feels like. In my past life with another manufacturer, the only lead that I ever got from the mothership was for our biggest customer. And I said, thanks, I I think we've got that one covered. You know, whereas here I get phone calls every day with customers saying, Hey, heard about you, you know, tell me more. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in your stuff. So, you know, but I've interviewed for a ton of sales positions and, and it's, it, my approach has cost me almost every single one because I always ask them, you know, you're, you're hiring for sales, does this mean you have too much demand? And and I always get a funny look, like, what are you talking about? And, <laughs> but in my mind, 
you know, marketing is getting dates and sales is putting the ring on the finger. And, and I can, I haven't tried this experiment, but I'm guessing that if you try and get more dates by making proposals, it's not going to go well. Now, and, and I've, and I've said, but just anecdotally, that people aren't good at both of those things typically. Kind of like you you are my density. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and Aaron Ross has the same opinion, so I think he's a pretty smart guy. Yeah, he I, I really like that book. Um, and I mentioned Dan McDade's book as well. They both kind of uh, Dan's a little more focused on the nurturing lead side than Aaron's more of a big picture guy, but both systems thinkers and they have good systems that, that apparently work well and they're logical. And Aaron, um, Aaron opened my eyes quite a bit um, when I was reading through his stuff and I've got a lot of his graphics reproduced, you know, to insert into presentations and the like, uh, because just they're so simple. And effective um, at, at communicating. So let me know how you uh, like the rest of that book when you read through it. It's it's pretty neat. I mean, one of the things about you know his his uh, his kind of approach that I can just pull pull off the top of my head was this concept of the ideal customer profile, and that's just one of the things um, that I can recall. And I just don't remember ever seeing anything like that. Out of at least out of the box. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of custom work o- over the years, but nothing really out of the box that man, you know, basically is a, a I guess a data model for the ideal customer profile that you you can use later in your execution side or, or helping you to you know identify prospects out of your you know larger population easily to go after. And then number two is how do you develop that? I mean. Is any yeah. you know? There's certainly nothing helping you do that. It's going to be a method that you see as a checklist, maybe off the internet, or you're going to have a subject matter expert or some new head of sales come in and tell you how they want to do it. But there's really no standard um, that's incorporated into a platform that I'm aware of. I'm, I could be wrong. I'm, I hope hopefully somebody will jump in and let me know if I'm wrong. Uh, because well, there's like some to- predictive analytic companies out there that that say that they can tell whether a customer is a good fit for you. Um, you know, they're add-ons to Salesforce and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's I after wonder, the fact though. Is that, I mean, that's after they've already had an interaction or is that something, is that something out of like a data.com, which they, by the way, they, sun, they sunsetted. So I'm not sure. I think they're counting on their, their <laughs> app exchange partners. Now I, I actually pointed that out. I believe in the, this article that, I, that's the first place I went was data.com because I, I knew of it. And um, I saw that they were saying bye-bye to it and letting their their um, app exchange partners take that over and just working on better integration. Yeah. So that's that's very interesting. So, so I know there's people that have tried that. You know, that's another question that I've asked in interviews that, again, gets me a funny look. You know, I, I've always wondered, you know, whenever I'm talking to salespeople, I always ask them, you know, what are the top three indicators that tell you you're looking at a really good prospect? And it's, again, this is all anecdotal, this is not scientific, but, you know, the most successful salespeople always have the answer to that question right off the top of their head. You know, anybody who says that, oh, everybody's a potential customer, you know, they get nowhere really fast. 
Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. Um, there's just, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of potential customers out there, but you know, you also have to work within your means as well. So being able to target effectively the first time is, is pretty critical. I would say, I, I mean, I, I, you know, like Dan McDade does, says don't, you know, focus on cost per lead, but there's still a cost that you don't want to incur. <laughs> um, yeah if you don't have to. So while it may take money to develop a lead, you want to be, or a prospect into a lead, you don't want to start with prospects that are never going to go anywhere. So if you can figure that out early, uh, I think well, you're it goes off. back to the Xerox information from the sixties. You know, they figured out that there's basically three buckets that customers fit into. And the most successful bucket is when you were, guiding towards the ultimate solution you know when you you get your the magic words are getting your customer to say i never thought of my business that way you know a lot of people think that that's exactly what i'm looking for is what they want to hear but what xerox found out was that's about a 15 percent success rate in that bucket because then they're just comparing alternatives and you know if yep. the worst place to be is where there's no uh, demand, where they aren't looking for anything. But even there, there's a reason why we get spam, because it works. If they didn't get a 1% or a 0.1% success rate, they wouldn't do it. So what I've always told my teams and what I've tried to do is if if you wind up in that 1% bucket where you're having to go out and look at least go and look in a place that's more likely to be fertile. You know, selling furniture, if I go to every, you know, dentist office in the DFW area, I should be able to find one that needs some new chairs for their reception area. But that's going to be a small order and it's not going to be a recurring order. You know, so back to your RFM, you know, if I'm going to spend 1% time, I need to make it where the payoff is potentially worthwhile. Yeah, because right. Well, in the spam, in the spam scenario, they've just, they're going to make up for that on volume for you. You have to, that's right. It needs to be a bigger ticket item. Yeah. Would it surprise you to learn that fax marketing still works in the government sector? No, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I, I, um, well, it's been a while now, but I'm, uh, even in the private sector, fax was still, you know, kind of big, even into the, the mid 2000s. Um, I had to, um, develop a, um, uh, kind of a, a communication system with clients for an insurance company and, you know, still like, 40 or 50% of their, um, their retail agents or brokers reps, um, were fax only, no email. So I had to do a system that could, you know, flick the switch, make, send an email or, or fax. But yeah, in the gov government, they, they, they make their investments and set their standards and it takes a long time to change. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. You know, TV marketing still works. I, I haven't watched a commercial and I don't know how long, but there are people out there that are doing it. So if I do things only from my perspective, then I'm going to miss out. You know, I used to be enamored with, with innovation. I, you know, I thought, man, companies that innovate the best win. And, and I've learned that that's, that's simply not true. 
innovation is the easy part. The hard part is discovery. And we have these phrases that drive us away from that. You know, we, we think we can create demand. We think we can deliver value. And when we think that way, that's, that's when we get tripped up into reading our own press clippings. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're throwing softballs. <laughs> so so uh, let, let me ask you this. What did, what did you mean by discovery? I, I mean, discovery is finding things that have always been there, but we weren't aware of. So you, you don't know, think that's part of the innovation process? I, I think it's I think it's the part of the innovation process. I think if you get the discovery wrong on either end, your innovation process is absolutely pointless. So when I see companies with cheap innovation, chief innovation officers, it drives me bananas, you know, it, or they've got innovation labs. Where's your discovery lab? Where's your invention lab? Exactly. You know, those are ideation labs. <laughs> They're yeah. ideation labs. It's like uh, let's take this pile of I- ideas that we haven't used yet and see what we come up with. <laughs> you know, but if you look at Stratagem, where you spent some time, they've got a great example of why that matters in Bosch. You know, Bosch went out and they discovered what a market would find valuable. And they, because they had that pile of ideas, they were able to go to the pile of ideas and assemble a solution in hours. The innovation part was super easy because they had all the raw materials. And once they got the discovery right, it led them to a home run. That's that's absolutely right. And that, and that gets into this. The I talk a lot about um, processes um, and uh, when you look at, you know, a, you know, a job to be done as a process, that's the way we've kind of, you can look at it a lot of different ways of capability or whatever, but it's, uh, it's a series, it's got an, imp- it's got inputs and outputs, right? Yeah. I mean, it. Does. so <clears throat> in the case of, uh, this job of, uh, developing an unqualified unqual- lead, um, that has a useful output if you're concerned about your customer and the the customer in this case would be an organization like yours, sales organization. And that's what makes that question that you, that keeps you from getting a new job. (laughs) So hilarious. (laughs) Um, You know, if you're looking for to hire somebody in sales, you must be, you must be overwhelmed with qualified leads. (laughs) So, yeah. yeah, So I haven't, I, you know, I know, I know from firsthand experience, I've studied, I think all the people that I follow and, and that, that part, you know, that world, you know, Dan, Aaron, th- they would all agree with this, that there's a, an output um, from one group to the next group that have, they're playing different roles. And um, Dan McDade likes to talk about, you know, don't focus on the cost per lead because, you know, then what you, then you're focused on volume. <laughs> so it's like, uh, I don't need a lot of leads. I just need a couple of really good ones to meet my quota. And somebody like like you and your role um, and your team are probably quota carrying people. And if that's the case, the last thing you want to be doing is focusing on something that will not fulfill your current period quota because it's a waste of time, waste of your time. Um, And, you know, there's different ways to look at that. We talked that we've talked about it before where in some organizations you just, you can't get past that because you're still small 
and people are wearing um, many hats. But I think when they grow, they don't grow into a more uh, a more um, componentized kind of system where you start breaking those those roles apart and, and focusing on improving that process that the salesperson may have had to do before on their own, you know, going out and um, lead beating. Um, you know, most salespeople that I've worked with, th- th- that's just not, they are, they're just like, boom, boom, boom. I need to, na- I got to nail this today. I get up in the morning and I'm like hunting, you know, I'm going to close that thing. And uh, if you ask them to go, if you give them, you know, we just sent out this blast email and look at all these, you know, you know, we got a, an open rate of 0.0001%. Go after that, go after that 0.001%. And they're just worthless. They won't, they're not going to do it is what's going to happen. Because they're they're going to find their own way to to develop a lead um, that they think might close in the current period, um, and usually that's when you get surprises. You know, your your funnel is like, well, I don't understand what's going on. All these people that closed this this quarter, they were they never showed up in our pipeline. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, so I, I just think it's really important that we break this apart and understand what what is the ideal. Um, from a capability perspective, you know, what is the objective of that group marketing or lead beaters, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. And the objective well, should be a quality, a quality output, not a, a volume output. Right. And to, to have a quality output, you have to understand the nature of the thing. So when I hear the phrase create demand, I, I, I'm, I'm amazed at how you do that. You know, for centuries, alchemy tried to create gold out of the ether, and it never worked for them. And and in the same way, I I think it's impossible to create demand. And on the other side of it, I think demand is infinite. We are never satisfied. What we're satisfied with today becomes table stakes tomorrow and becomes cringeworthy the next day. Yeah, I mean that's that's absolutely right. I mean the the you know marketing people that think they generate demand that that's I get where they're coming from. They're trying to create interest in the their offering, um, but they're not they're not creating demand. Demand either was um, located earlier by another you know um, a market planning or strategy group, um, or they they got lucky. <laughs> uh, but either way, it's discovered. Just like gold, you can't sit in a lab and make gold. You have to go out and you have to dig in the ground. That's and right. You have to find it. It's and there if you're already. smart, you know what some of the indicators are. You know where the best spot to look is in the first place. I mean, to me, it's it's the best metaphor. You know, there's there's, there's the theater of of things and there's the actual doing of things you know in innovation we've got a lot of theater in in sales we've got a lot of theater and in marketing there's a lot of theater but at the end of the day there's there's also the actually doing it i can spend a lot of time doing what people call selling and never sell a darn thing you know i've had a few people on my team that have done that yeah it's um it is uh, it's interesting to watch all that i did a <laughs> i got all these pictures flashing through my mind i did a blog post a, a bunch of years ago where i had these uh like um they look like covid 19 um 
bell curves overlapping. And I, I had a salesperson going up the curve and coming, just coming over the top and then hopping onto the other one <laughs> on the upslope. Um, you know, cause they seem to like jump, you know, but I think the average tenor, uh, tenure of a CMO is like when I wrote, it was like 18 months. And, uh, I just noticed a lot of, uh, Sales, salespeople, people running sales were very personality oriented and they, you know, we're just going to come in and every, get everybody, you know, cheerleading, really get some high energy going here and go out and sell some stuff. And it just, it never worked. I mean, you'd get a little bit of bump of enthusiasm. Maybe somebody that was a little demoralized would work a little bit harder. You'd see something, but it would never last. So that theater thing really kind of resonates with me a lot. Um, and I just never really articulate, articulate it like that. I had to draw a picture. I didn't have a word for it. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> well, I, I, I describe it as the difference between the verb and the noun. You know, if you don't have anything to show for it at the end of the day, did you really do that thing? You know, I can grab a hammer and a saw and, you know, most people wouldn't call what I've done carpentry. Well, certainly not me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm definitely not a carpenter. Um, but again, I just think you know the the uh, we've got a lot of this um, fail fast mentality in product development. I think the same thing. I think some of that demand generation thing comes from that as well. Where if we just try something and then if we fail, we try something else, and then if it works, then we create a demand. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, just magically, um, the, the problem is, you know, there's, there's an intersection between the actual product that you're selling and that interest that, that, that has to be tied to something. And, um, it's not your personality. It really isn't. If, if it's got a, if it's tied to your personality and you've got to continually jump in there and, and save the day every time there's some kind of a, a life cycle issue, you know, may support, you know, support issue. I've seen this many times in the software world where the salesperson and they get, they get frustrated because their commissions aren't locked in, you know, the first day of the sale. So, um, they got to make sure it sticks and, uh, having to come in and, you know, save a, a bad implementation was, um, always, a a knuckle biter. And what, what's really sad. And I, <laughs> I've got, I've got, you know, my own stories, I'm sure lots of people do is, um, you know, they would come to me to help price out deals because I was the, the expert on implementation and, um, and delivery. And I would always get my estimates, you know, cut by two thirds. <laughs> so when, it, when, you know, you go back later and, and have to sell it, um, sell the fact that it's going to take longer, the salesperson's not happy that they're that they got to get back involved. And I'm like, well, if you just sold it at the price I told you in the first place, your commission would have been bigger. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's just a lot of, there's a lot of, um, um, there's a lot of downside in a, in a personality based sale. So. Well, um, and especially when you're coming at it with a lack of understanding of what the other party finds valuable and, and it's always an exchange. You know, you, you have to do what's valuable for your company as well. You know, I don't care. You know, marshmallows are awesome. I love marshmallows, but it doesn't matter how many you have. If you go into McDonald's and try and buy a Happy Meal with marshmallows, you're not going to be effective. So I understand the nature of it being a two-way transaction. But at the end of the day, I know 
what any retailer finds valuable, and that's currency. What they don't know is what I find valuable. And I'm left to hunt and pack, you know, to find those things. And I found some gems and I found some duds. But if, and that's where marketing fills that gap is how do you get people like me to understand your offering so that they can demonstrate some interest? You know, there's there's the age old, you know, and like I said, I'm in research mode, so I don't feel like I have any answers at all. And I don't even think I don't know what I don't know yet. That's That's where I am in this process. So, you know, and the beauty of COVID is that it's opened up a lot of opportunities for online access to a ton of information. So, so I've been sitting in on a lot of these marketing, uh, podcasts or, or webcasts or whatever they are. And, and what's blown my mind is the topics that they're discussing. You know, the two big issues in marketing world right now seem to be attribution and, and access to content. And, and the arguments are, you know, who, who really created the interest that resulted in a sale? And, and should we have our fabulous white papers behind a paywall or not? <laughs> well, that's funny because um, when I think, when I hear the word attribution, I just think, um, you know, I, I look at the whole timeline of how that anonymous person maybe got came all the way through to a sale you know where you know um it, it's 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 across a timeline and there's a lot of different things that have to happen and what drives me crazy is when i hear um a marketing team being um incentivized by revenue um development so they, they if you most of the systems i've worked with and and this is listen that goes back a long time i know they're more tightly integrated these days but um, there's still some gaps where it's very difficult, especially in a lot of companies I've worked with even recently that are, have a lot of mainframe systems um, built in like a, a, a address-based billing system or premise-based billing systems that they have to try to turn into customer experience you know, centers of some kind. But they can't really tie a, a revenue back to a, you know, earlier stages in lead development, it's, it's very difficult to do that in some of these places. And, you know, these integrated platforms like Salesforce, I'm sure are, are a lot better at that, but um, trying to incentivize. And again, this is where breaking these two competencies out is important. If you incentivize your marketing team on revenue, um, how, how can, I mean, you're, you've got two people competing for the same dollar or two groups. I mean, I don't know how that works. And in, in, in what happens is they think uh, you, you start getting into that mode and it's cost per lead. So we got to drive our cost per lead down and then volume goes up and the salespeople don't, don't use any of your leads so that when a revenue does develop, there's probably a, a, a fight for who, who owns it. I mean, well, even if it does develop, I'm the last guy in the room and they saw my pretty face and they loved me. So, of course, they bought because of me. You know, if, if you get into this discussion over our, you know, where it came from, it's a waste of time. You know, look at your Team Jeep. Effort. What, what's more important on your Jeep, the steering wheel or the wheels? Hmm. 
for me, it's the wheels. <laughs> I'll, I'll guarantee you, you aren't going very far without the steering wheel either. You, well, know, you get into that a, hole. It's not a binary discussion. No, I know. And that gets, I, I don't want to go digress too much. We can have this conversation some other time, but I, I probably mentioned this to you in the past about user story mapping. And one of the, when I first learned of that, the, the example that was given was, you know, say you're developing an automobile. Um, you've got to map, you've got to have, and it's very much like job mapping. It defines your scope. If you've got a capability somewhere along that backbone that doesn't have a requirement in it, uh, or a user story or the right number of user stories to like, say, slow your vehicle. What's more important, your steering wheel, your wheels or your brake? Well, they're all important. You got to avoid obstacles. Um, you got to be able to roll <laughs> with the least amount of friction. And I guess, and you've got to be able to stop your vehicle. You can't, there's no trade-offs there. You've got to have all those things. Exactly. So, <clears throat> it's not a competition. And at the end of the day, you know, what we need is, is, and, and like I said, you know, in some companies, it's one person doing them all in, in other companies, it's, it's departments of people doing each individual step. But what matters is that those steps get done. And, <laughs> and if, if you aren't paying attention to that and getting caught up in other things, you know, it's, it's very easy and, and I think that's part of the problem to focus on the theater instead of the outcome. Yeah. It's um, again, this gets back to why I was so, I just love those books, um, predictable revenue and, and the truth about leads because they make it very clear, you know, what the responsibilities are of each group. What is, what is your objective? Well, my objective is if I'm in marketing or if I'm developing a lead is not to, create revenue. My objective is to path, understand who my customer is, find out from them what, you know, what do you need? I need a, I need a, I got a quota. I got a million dollar quota and my average sale is, you know, 250,000. So I probably need um, like six leads that are going to close at an 85% rate, yep. you know? And so if that's the case, it becomes, it's like, okay, you judge them on, you know, if they're not giving you leads that convert at that rate, you're not going to hit your quota, probably. Or that um, size, you know, th or, those or the right size, the right matter. size, the right, yeah, and the right volume. So it's like I either give you more smaller ones, which are going to take more time potentially, or I give you, you know, so there's a balance you got to figure out. And they, if they were focused on that, <laughs> I think they would view marketing in a completely different way. And I, I just, I know there are people that do, that think like this. I know there are because we've read books from people that have developed successful systems for companies like Salesforce in case of Aaron Ross. And, um, you know, so it works. It's proven. But why people don't see that um, is beyond me sometimes. I, I'm wired differently. I get it. Um, but uh, it just seems like it's this it's constant theater and nobody really takes a look like what, what are our objectives? What is the objective of my downstream customer? Um, you know, that my, the, the, the work item that goes through my hands does not go from my hands to revenue. If I'm a marketer, it yeah. goes to, it goes to somebody that's going to convert it to revenue for me. That's their role. Yep. I'm still and incentivized. Okay. I, I'm, I play a role in that, but I don't, you know, everybody gets focused on that dollar sign. And that's why I push back so hard when people use deliver value, create demand, because it it fundamentally, I think, changes 
the way that you behave when you understand you're in a discovery mode, not a creation mode. You know, it's, it's, it's two fundamentally different ways to view things. You don't go looking for it. If you're not, if you're not in discovery mode, you're not trying to figure out ways to go look for it. Um, no, you think you can go back in your mad scientist lab and and mix a couple of beakers together and poof, there it is. Well, I mean, it's it gets into the whole, you know, and and what we get are um, concepts like engagement. Um, we just well, if we just engage more, more is more, right? More, more is more, and we're gonna we're gonna suddenly have a better experience. <laughs> How are you gonna become profitable? Volume. <laughs> more is more. It's like the it's like the, what is it the art for the architectural world where the guy said, you know, we're not very profitable, but we make up for it in volume. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, and and that just gets into a whole another world. And I think I think all of these buzz terms that we deal with are part of the theater. It's because people are, they've got to, they've got to have a fresh new act. And, uh, you know, that's what differentiates them. And they get out on, on the front side of that. And uh, we end up with, you know, terms like engagement, which, you know, I, you know, I'm sure we've got metrics, you know, down in that, um, in that execution side that would tell us, um, what engagement might look like. Um, especially when we get into the consumption space, but you know, do we need to engage or are they looking for something different? What does engagement mean? Does it mean constant interaction? Does it mean delightful experiences or does it mean I need the right information right at this point to make a decision? And I don't care what it looks like. I don't care if you shoot it through an implant in my head. <laughs> I don't really want to engage with your brand. I am trying to get something done. And if I can do it without engagement, um, great marketing people. For some reason, they blur the lines between trying to develop that lead to close a sale and just creating a customer experience. Um, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to generate more revenue. They're trying to grow the relationship, and there's ways to look at growing the relationship. One of the things that I did in um in that in this last series was I talked about, and I didn't get into a lot of depth, and this kind of goes off the reservation a little bit from outcome-driven innovation, but I look, we talk about contexts. I, I consider, um, when you look at revenue development, I consider there to be a, um, a couple of modes to that. I just call them modes because there's still contexts within those. But, um, you know, creating a net new customer is a mode. Um, um, growing that crust customer relationship is a moat. So cross selling, upselling, whatever. That's great. If you want, if that's, if that's what your customers want as a part of their relationship or the, the buying process, that's great. You, you, you might want to ask them. Um, but you also need to think about um, that whole front end of innovation thing again, and make sure that what you're offering is actually um, helping them get either more of the job done a related job, something along those lines, instead of something you just happen to have to sell. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I came up with that term mode. I, it just seems like a mode to me. You know, I think in software development terms or software usage terms, like when we used to actually have different modes of a form, um, you know, edit new item. And it just seems to me like new customer editing a customer. It just seems like a mode to me. So I, yeah. I'll probably get criticized for that by somebody, but, um, it's just the way I want to 
wanted to describe it. And I, I didn't want to have to build hierarchies of these things because it gets really confusing. So I figured it just, it's a different mode. It, it makes it easier to explain or build a actual hierarchical model. And then the modes just kind of hang off of that. Um, yeah. And, and it's understanding what mode you're in matters. So like yep. even in sales, if, if there's no demand and you're presenting solutions, your, your success rate is going to be low like in the 1% range. You know, if you're trying to sell where there's no demand, it's a waste of time. So what would your, so in the, so the modes thing really is a, at the revenue development level. So that's where the, the marketing and the sales have to work in concert. I mean, and that's the, one of the things that we see in the theater, theater of sales and all this engagement, you know, more is more type stuff. They just keep, sending stuff out to people trying to stimulate some interest in something they have no idea if it's going to hit or not or stick or not and then this, what do the salespeople do in those situations well in a lot of organizations they they don't they aren't even aware that all of that is going on you know it's it's uh it's very interesting you know what i loved about your article is the graph where you highlighted, okay, here's the steps or the sub objectives and here's the big current solutions and here's who addresses them. You know, it, the level of abstraction is just off. It's, it's all focused on the fun part. You know, it's it, it, without doing any of the, the groundwork to get you there. You know, it's, well, it, I like it to think that they to do, that. they do the, they do the groundwork. I mean, the people, are doing well there are there are organizations that do the groundwork but as you you might see if you I don't know if you've looked at a recent copy of that edit that draft but um, the the market mapping image I've used that many times in the past it comes from a really great book but that is a uh, serious work um, that's yeah. being done I don't think every organization does that I think a lot of people just wing it I know for a fact <laughs> You know, people that claim to be experienced marketing people just wing it. And, you know, they're, they're all about, you know, creating sales copy. Um, yeah. If so, you build it, they will come. And, and you know, it, what confuses that is that there's a lot of businesses that are founded by basically customers. You know, the, Amazon was a customer for cloud computing and they weren't happy. So they built their own. And guess what? A lot of people want that same version of cloud computing. And so they've been able to monetize that incredibly. So that happens. But whether you're doing it yourself as a customer or you're figuring out what your customers are looking at, those steps need to be done. Somebody has to do those steps. Yeah, they don't. The job, the job it. is never done. Yeah. <laughs> I think some people have said that, that the job, you know, when the job's done, it goes away. It doesn't. The job's always there. The, the, the goal is to automate as much of that consumption side of things as you can, and then it looks like it's gone. You know? But that's why I say discovery is the skill that matters most, yep. you know, and some discovery is like the clampets. You shoot it, you shoot your shotgun and boom, up comes bubbling coal. You know, sometimes you, you trip over things that's right. that were right there in front of you, but the smart ones know how to look at the indicators and dig and find things that nobody else is ever going to discover on their own. Bosch was never going to trip over putting those 14 specific things together into a product. 
even though they had it all sitting on the shelf. You know, my bigger fear is that we've got a lot of companies who don't have that shelf of ideas because they've been so focused on the innovation part. They've used up all of their raw materials and there's no other permutations of the stuff they have. That's, so that's why yeah. I always say there's a you need a blend and yeah. and your innovation should be driving where you're focusing your invention and your discovery. So so they all work together and and it all fits no matter whether you're talking about marketing, sales, product development or project management. It, it those things matter in all of those groups. You know, I, 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 yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, I was just going to say, you know, to me, if innovation doesn't matter in your accounting department, it doesn't matter to the company. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> it just, you know, it, I think I, I use the term and I, I actually got a little bit of a pushback from somebody on this term, but I, I, I think companies tend to focus on their competencies and they double down. I know Clay Christensen, you know, talked about companies making all the right or the the wrong decisions for the right reasons or something along those lines but um you know the, if your competency is x it's tough to look at something that's not that's not part of that you know let's say it has to do with creating you know some software process um it may not be um market mapping um which is uh you know, kind of a process for, I think, doing like micro segmentation um, and understanding, you know, some of the smaller groups or some of the, some of the ways to get to market where the influence and leverage is and maybe creating groups so that you, you can test your um, invest, you know, test your investments out in smaller groups. But uh, n none of the, I, you know, so when your competency doesn't look like that, <laughs> I guess it's hard to see that, that um, that might be an area uh, of opportunity for you because your your customers, the, a lot of them probably aren't doing any of that stuff because they don't they think you know marketing automation sales automation is everything they need to know and that is that is the way it's been sold in the past but it, but when you kind of take away the um, all these solutions and you start asking people what are you trying to accomplish what do you, what's the first thing you need to do when you start um, you know. And then you start, you know, digging into that, you realize that there's more going on um, in these organizations and that they, they, they could use help because there are no solutions. And, you know, at times, depending on what market you're looking at, there are solutions. You know, there might be technology solutions. There's just poor integration or they don't think that nobody ever thought to integrate them. But in cases like marketing, and I'm sure when I start moving into the sales side, we'll see it there as well. But, um, and, and certainly into some of the other areas, there's just not a lot, there's, um, there's just this focus on that, that theater side of things and not all the rehearsals, you know, that, that go into it, the writing of the play, the rehearsals and all that stuff, um, doesn't seem to be, um, front and center. So I'm hopeful that the, the kind of the way I depicted it, make some sense and that people can start looking at it a little bit differently. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm open to debate on all this. I, I did it. I did a lot of this based on my experiences and, and some conversations I've had with people in the area. Um, but it's not perfect. There is no perfect model. Um, you know, we just want to, I think, um, it's good enough. <laughs> it's good enough to have these conversations and to understand that, um, 
that these companies could be looking in a different direction. We look at the that Martech landscape, and if I, I've I think I might have linked to the original article I'd done, but back when they first started publishing it years ago, there was like, you know, a few hundred and now there's 8,000 brands. Um, it's it's become its own market. It's ridiculous. And, and, you know, the re so the question I'm asking is, you know, and, and I, I always used to use this, uh, um, in some of my presentations, it had to do with the fact that, you know, the, the, um, you know, the, the, the CRM market is booming. <laughs> I'd have this graph of showing how big it keeps getting every year in the spend. And then, and then I'd have a gra- something showing how poorly companies were doing <laughs> generating profit or revenue over the yeah. long haul. Like I said, and, CMOs have more technology dollars than CIOs. Yeah. But, and the thing, and, and it's just interesting that uh, they keep spending all this money because the pro, you know, they're trying to, um, they're trying to figure out ways to grow, and that is, you know, that's my 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 hypothesis or my theory is that companies want to achieve profit, sustain profitable growth. Um, that the and the fact that there's all these companies in here, they just keep trying to do the same thing, but only better. And they and they, t- I think they take they interpret like maybe things that maybe a Clay Christensen has said about you know disruption. You know, sometimes the a disruptor only has to do the job good enough. And they, so they will carve off other pieces and, and just focus on one little thing and do it good and then do it only good enough. And it's just weird. I just don't know where some of these, the thinking comes to invest in, in these, uh, in these brands or the things that they do because they seem to all focus in that same area. Um, and I haven't done a deep analysis because there's 8,000 of them. <laughs> so, um, and, and, and the Martech, uh, the Martech uh, chief Martech landscape uh, does not go into they they categorize things, but not really in a useful way for me. Um, which is why I kind of categorized it differently in that matrix. But it's it's difficult to tell what they actually do. You know, it's um, so it's just it's something that would take a lot of work. And it, you know, I'm not sure how worthwhile the work would be. To be honest with you, there's so many of them. I, I just I don't think if any of them were really doing what we're saying they sh- they should do they would probably start getting noticed um yeah, we'd be all you have to do them. is look at who who has profitable sustained growth and well you know i i hear you know you might hear somebody go well look salesforce but you know how long is you know how many quarters has salesforce been profitable in the last 20 years I mean, they're growing. I mean, Amazon had the same thing. I mean, Amazon, you know, started off as a bookseller. It was not profitable, not profitable, and went on for. I don't, I can't remember when they started becoming profitable. Maybe they're still not profitable. I didn't look, but when they when they started building out their technology and then selling the excess capacity, um, I think that's when I took notice. I was like, oh. <laughs> That yeah. is interesting because <laughs> I didn't lack see that. Of payment of taxes would suggest that they haven't made dollar one in profit, but I haven't looked into it. Well, yeah, I mean, and profit is, you know, it's an accounting figure in a lot of ways. Um, just, uh, you know, um, there's other ways, there's other ways to, to look at it. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I see, I mean, Amazon's a very, innovative company. I, I think, um, they see things, they get it They're I think they're putting pressure on logistics now. Um, I will, it'd be interesting to see where that goes. I don't think it'll just be a UPS, you know, FedEx competitor. I think there'll be more to it. 
Um, yeah, that, well, I see it as that's their biggest weakness is, you know, you've talked about customer experience a couple of times. They've, they've abdicated their ultimate customer experience to a group of uncontrolled individuals. Can you explain that? Well, have you ordered anything from Amazon lately? Oh God. Yes. How much of it showed up when you thought it was going to? Um, I've had a couple of um, a couple of hiccups. Not um, generally not with Prime. You know, when it was labeled Prime, I usually got it. I, listen, I've been surprised a couple of times. I, I you know, would order something on Saturday and have it delivered on Sunday. Yeah. So, uh, but you're, I, I, yeah, I think when that ecosystem kind of gets a little bit looser, it's gonna we're gonna see some degradation of performance there. Um, yeah, just I, and go I, on Twitter and search for Amazon fails and, and you'll find some great. Is stuff. that what you do with your free time? <laughs> yeah. I haven't, I haven't, uh, I haven't thought to do that. <laughs> I don't go on Twitter much anymore, but um, no, yeah. So they're, you know, it's fun to watch these companies. I mean, they, uh, they were a big company that I think disrupted, you know, I come out of the CRM technology space. We went from, individual servers and applications into virtualization then to the you know salesforce on the cloud but i think what amazon did was completely different they they basically are the infrastructure that that everybody needs in the software world um and it's uh, or the technology and software world and it's just it was unbelievable to watch that happen and uh, i'm looking forward to so but i think there's opportunities in the uh crm space to look at that front end. And my, my theory right now is that we're going to see this in a lot of jobs is, is that that planning side, the earlier steps are not, are usually not looked at because there's not sexy. It's not theater. And I think that's going to be true in lots of markets. Um, it's certainly it's true. Hard. It is hard, but I mean, you know, I, my example in this blog post was in the meeting space and uh, I've done, did a little bit of work in that area. Um, but, the uh, the the reference I had in there came from a book I read um, called it's called the Leadership Handbook. It was a Peter Sh- uh, Schultz book. Um, he's big in the lean world, and he you know he talks about if you go through his books you'll see this jobs and tasks all throughout. It's just funny to watch that. Watch I sometimes wonder where all this came from, and I look back at guys like that and I see a lot of the, a lot of foundation was laid by them. But um, you know, yeah. he he looks at everything as a process, and it just makes sense. And and what you see in that meeting space is a focus on the theater, and you don't well, see. A and f- look who's winning! You've got Zoom out there, which you know is if you believe the conspiracy theories, is is you know a spy network. Uh, but you've got even the hardest core IT professionals throwing up their hands and saying, "Well, <laughs> go for it." Yeah. Yeah. The IT, uh, the IT world, interesting, interesting changes there, but um, <laughs> yeah, well, anytime you get, I think it's probably to a lesser degree today than it was 10 years ago, but um, yeah, anytime you mention the cloud, you know, they're, they're going to throw their arms up, you know, because they've lost control and it yeah. gets, it, it's been this, this back and forth between you talk about the marketing people have an IT budget. It's the technology was always sold. You know, when, by the time I got into it in the mid '90s, as um, 
hey, this is so easy to use. Even a even a salesperson can configure it. <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> you know, yeah, so, well, most of the people selling CRM were either former salespeople or CPAs. Yeah. It was the weirdest thing. But, um, the you know, and as we moved into the cloud, it just became easier and easier to configure. But, of course, that front end stuff, how do we configure it? Why are we doing this? You know, can we build a complex nurturing cycle into this? What does it look like? None of that's in there. I mean, you can configure it. And to some degree, you know, some, I'm sure some platforms more easily than on others, but they don't help you plan that stuff out. And I just, I just see that as the the big weakness in this area. And I, and I, you know, if somebody can start to figure that out, of course, you're going to have to have some kind of a standard. I think there's plenty of people out there that have, um, that have set that standard, you know, pick your standard, <laughs> you know, um, there's, you know, you could even integrate. Uh, something like ODI into this world because there's a clear data model there too. So I think that's the area that a lot of value could be added. We'll see where, I don't, and I don't think Salesforce or Microsoft or any of those companies need to be the ones that start that process. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. All I know uh, is that as a sales guy, you know, I would love a world where there's a lot more demand that trickles our way. You know, it, it, if, if you want to know how well your marketing system is working, you know, tell the salespeople to stay home for a month and see how well you do. I think that's a good indicator of, you know, whether or not your systems are, are doing anything. Yeah. Well, I think we should probably call this completed for the day. <laughs> it's been over an hour, but I, I want to just, uh, recall that last, that, that, that question you like to ask people that are interviewing you <laughs> one more time. <laughs> so the fact that you're hiring, what was it? Ex- tell me exactly how you asked that question again. I think that's hilarious. I asked them simply, do you have an excess of demand that you need more salespeople to convert it into revenue? <laughs> See there, you got caught in that trap of using the word demand. You're, no, you're, stro- you're, you're stroking them on one hand, saying suggesting that they're creating demand, and on the other hand, you're. <laughs> well, I, I I say have you know because when you discover it, you have it just as much as if you think you invented it. Yeah. You know, is is there an excess of demand that isn't getting filled that you're adding to your sales team? And and I love the way that uh, Aaron addresses that point blank. Well, yeah, I mean that's hilarious because at the end of the day you're coming in there they're going to slap a quote on you, right? And and if there's no if there's nothing there, then what? You're going to be you're going to then I've been hired to do sales, but I'm going to spend my time doing marketing. And if I was any good at sales, I'm I'm probably not great at marketing, so you're hiring somebody to do to not do the job that you're hiring them for. And it doesn't even matter if you're not good at it, Dale. I mean, the fact that you're incented to convert revenue or convert leads into revenue this period to you know to meet your quota means that the last thing you want to do is spend time nurturing something for a future period. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot for joining me today. Maybe we'll do this again soon. You bet. Thanks, Mike. <laughs>